The comedian, Christian comedian Michael Jr. tells the story of a Sunday school teacher who sat down with her class and, and said to the class, I want everybody to think about the highlight of your week. So take a moment and think of the highlight of your week. You guys can do this as well if you'd like. And uh, once they had it, she said, okay, now I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to tell them the highlight of your week. As soon as she said this, little Johnny's hand shoots up. And she's like, what could be unclear about what I just said? What is it, Johnny? She said, my neighbor doesn't go to this church. <laughs> It's a joke. You catch on just a second. Johnny's got a neighbor that lives next door to him that's not sitting next to him. And I wanted to start with something fun and lighthearted and maybe even get you to think about the highlight of your week because we're talking about death to self this morning and that's not the most uplifting of topics to begin with. So, uh, so begin with a smile on your face. Uh, last week we talked about the key to life. The key to life is trusting God. If you were here last week, you know that we talked about that and that that was actually one of three keys to life. It was the first and, and most important beginning step to what we're calling the life without lack. We've been looking at this for, for several weeks now. We're in week four of a six-week series based on Dallas Willard's book, Life Without Lack, and the 23rd Psalm. And some of you are reading that book, and some of you are, are sharing with me uh, how that is uh, speaking to you, and, and that's a wonderful thing, and, and we celebrate that. Today, we're moving to the second step of the key to life, the second key to life. As we trust in God, then we die to ourselves. The second key that we'll be looking at today is death to self. And then next week, we'll end on an up note as we talk about agape love, living a life of love, a life of self-sacrificing surrender to God and to those around us. So this is as we talk about death to self. It's important to recognize that we're talking about death to self, not death to of self. And that's an important distinction because yourself is incredibly valuable to God and to you and to others. That you are a unique creation of God created by the good and loving God of the universe to do good works. And it's not that we die the death of ourselves, it's a death to ourselves. We're no longer living for ourselves, we're living for God. And that involves a death to ourselves. It's a surrendering of ourself, of our unique shape, if you would, uh, if you've ever heard it called that before, that, that shape is an acronym that stands for spiritual gifts, harder passion, ability, personality, and experiences. That you have a unique shape, you have a unique experiences throughout your life, whether you're young or you're old. You have a unique personality in a way that you interact with the world around you, whether you're introverted or extroverted, whether you're, uh, you know, outgoing or more reserved, whether you focus on the details or you like to see the big picture, whatever the case may be, you have a unique personality. You have abilities, whether those are professional things that you've picked up through training and and education or just following along with dad or grandpa or mom, and you have abilities. You have a heart or passion, things that fire you up, things that when you see them happening in the world, they just make you frustrated or angry and you say, something needs to be done about that and I'm the one to do it. And so you have a heart and you have a passion and you have spiritual gifts. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. And so that unique shape, we're not dying, we're not talking about the death of that, we're talking about surrendering that to God. The death maybe of our ego, of the part that says what's in it for me and is only looking to get our needs met. We do say 
no to that in order to surrender our unique shape, our unique personality, spiritual gifts, abilities, heart, passion, personality. We surrender that to God. We subvert our ego and we live to the Spirit. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about death to self, not necessarily the death of self. So this week, as we have in previous weeks, we're going to begin with Psalm 23, and we're going to look at this psalm, and we're going to look at it through the lens of what does it say about death to self. And so in the 23rd Psalm, David, who wrote this psalm, says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me in the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley, through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's David making this declaration And within that declaration, that that shepherd psalm, we see death to self present in a number of different places. Right from the beginning in verse 1, he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I'm not my shepherd. This world is not my shepherd. Other people are not my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm following him. And as a result of that, as a result of dying to myself and dying to this world, dying to the opinions and, and dictates of others... I can say I lack nothing. And so there is surrender. There is a willingness to submit. There is a willingness to yield or to follow the Lord as our shepherd right from the very beginning. And then we see this play out in verses 2 and 3 where he's addressing God and he's, he's, he's telling us about God rather. And he's saying he makes me lie down in green pastures. And so you have to be willing to lie down when he says it's time to lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. We have to be willing to follow wherever he leads us. He refreshes my soul. He guides me on the right paths. And he does all these things for his name's sake. Not for our sakes so much as for his name's sake, that he is the object of the glory that our lives produce. And then in verse 4, we get to this even when, or that we're going to follow this shepherd, this Lord who is our shepherd, even when he leads us through the darkest valley, even when we go through grief, even when we go through suffering, even when we go through challenges and trials in life, we recognize that he is with us, and because we have died to ourselves and we are living for him and living with him, we are comforted by his presence in the midst of those dark valleys. Even when he sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We want that to say, you set a table before me in the presence of my friends and my family, right? But sometimes there are enemies and the Lord brings us before them in order to honor us in their presence, to anoint us in their presence. And so we see through this death to self that, that David exemplifies in this psalm that it is an even with or even when faith. It's fundamental, it's foundational, it's not situational. It's not an only if faith or a until faith, like I'm with you, you're my shepherd until I go through the dark valley and then I'm out of here. Or until you set a table in the presence of my enemies, I don't want to go there. We say even if or even though. 
And so with that as sort of a launch pad, we see this posture of humility and surrender that undergirds this whole psalm that there is a death to self that has taken place. I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at Jesus' teaching on death to self in one of the Gospels, on when Paul teaches about death to self in one of his letters, and then we'll close with this exhortation, an anonymous exhortation that's given to us to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. We see this throughout the New Testament. This is a very foundational principle for for believers, and it's a foundational element of the gospel, of the good news, that eternal life is available to us through faith in Christ when we surrender our lives to him and choose his will over our own. So let's look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. You can pick up a Bible and, and find it. I forgot to get the page number, so that's my fault. It's going to be on the screen behind you as well if you want to, uh, to, to follow along there. But here Jesus is teaching about death to self, and there's a number of times in each of the gospel where Jesus predicts his own death, and he tells his disciples that this is going to happen. And here in John's, I've focused on this one because there's a couple of elements that I really like about it. He starts about talking about himself, and he quickly transitions to talking about his disciples and to talking about us as a result. And the Gospels, like I said, contain many instances of him predicting his death, and the disciples didn't want to hear it then. Certainly not about their own death to self. And we don't necessarily want to hear this either sometimes. We, we, want, we want kind of a Jesus and, like, I want to follow you, and I want eternal life, and I want salvation, and I want all of my appetites and desires to be met. And that's not what we see Jesus promising here. We see Jesus saying to his disciples in verse 23 of John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I'm sure the disciples are like, yes, now we're getting there, right? You're going to be glorified. You're going to set up your earthly throne. We're going to be right there in the king's cabinet, and we're going to be your right hand and left hand men. And then he says verse 24, and it had to make their jaws drop because he stops talking about glory and honor for him and for them, and he starts talking about death. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And so he's talking about himself and he's talking about his death here, that he is that grain of wheat that will fall to the earth and die, and it's an important piece of the process for that death to take place because as he falls as he dies he will be raised again he will overcome sin and death on our behalf and that is how he will glorify God not through an earthly political kingdom but through conquering sin and death forever for everyone and this will bear much fruit do you see that the seed grows into a new plant and bears many seeds and those seeds fall and so there's this fruitfulness that takes place and each time the fruitfulness follows a fatality do you see that that the seed must fall to the earth and die and go into the ground and that is what brings about the new life that springs forth and so Jesus is talking about this he's talking about his own death here and how that will bring glory more glory than this earthly kingdom that the disciples are looking for could ever bring but he quickly shifts the subject from himself to his followers. He says in verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. 
And so he makes this contrast in verse 25, and you might be thinking, well, I don't know that we really have to hate our lives, right? Like, we can love God and still kind of love life, right? And he's making a comparison. He's using some hyperbole here. And so it's important to understand that when he talks about loves, he's saying, if you love your life more than you love me, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it for eternity. But if in comparison to me, you hate your life, you will have life for eternity. So he's making a a contrast, a big contrast. In fact, the English Standard Version Study Bible explains that second part there, hates his life in this world, will keep it. it. It says this means to think so little of your life and so much of God that you're willing to sacrifice it all for God. That's the contrast that's being made. That's the comparison that's being made. It's not that we despise or disdain ourselves, our lives, or this world but that we think so little of them, we forget them. Well, that's what humility is, is essentially self-forgetfulness. I forget about myself because I'm so focused on God and so focused on his purposes in the world. And that is what enables me to have eternal life in Christ. So it's not a disdain or a contempt for our lives. It's loving God so much that we forget about our lives, forget about our desires, forget about our appetites. And it's not have it your way right away. At you finish the blank. It's that we want it his way all the time. And we're willing to set aside our desires and our appetites for his desire for us. And so Willard points out in chapter 6, it's not uncommon for people to hear this message and think, wow, the Christian life is going to be a long dry haul so much for a life without lack. Anybody kind of going down that road is like, that doesn't sound like life without lack. That sounds like life without fun. And that's not what I was expecting. But that's not the case at all. The reality is that the long dry haul is when you're trying to manage your life by always getting what you want. Does it happen? No. If you have children in your life, what do they say all the time? That's not fair. You've heard that one. Yeah. I got four that say that. Not, not as often as they used to because, well, that's a whole other story. I won't even go there. But the gospel isn't fair, right? The gospel's not fair. I don't want fairness. Romans 6.23 tells me that the wages of sin is death. What's fair for the sin in my life is death, eternal death, forever death, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want fairness. I want grace. I want mercy. I want to exchange my sin for the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so our faith has to transform, like our faith last week when we talked about Job. We talked about the faith of Job that you can see in the Old Testament book of Job, that he starts with this faith of propriety. It's a faith in faith. It's a faith in his goodness and his ability to be blameless and upright. And he's serving God and he's unequaled in all the peoples of the East, we're told, in his introduction, in our introduction to Job. And yet that faith only takes him so far and it's a faith mixed with fear because how good is good enough and what if and then the what if happens. And the things turn very quickly for Job and and he finds himself in the faith of desperation. And that faith of desperation is the end of self for Job. And we looked at Job 13.25 where he says, Though he slay me, yet... Well, I serve him. He passes through the faith of desperation to the faith of sufficiency that says, God, 
your will, your ways, always. Whether it's pleasant to me or not, even if you slay me, I will serve you. And he lands on this faith of sufficiency that we called it. The deep abiding trust in God and in his goodness. Because we'll never know, God will never be all you need until he's all you have. Job discovered that. That when he came to the end of himself, when he came to the end of his ability, his resources, his intellectual insights into what was going on, even though he slay me, yet will I serve him. He comes to the end of himself and he finds out that God is more than enough. That God is more than sufficient. And so I mentioned that last week, but I didn't emphasize that God will never be all you need until he's all you have. And that's when we discover the faith of sufficiency, the faith that says the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. When he's my shepherd, when he's leading, I lack nothing. No good thing will be withheld from me. In fact, I read this morning in, in John Bailey's book of uh, daily book, uh, private prayers and uh, didn't have time to make a slide and everything, but he says he asks too much to whom God is not sufficient. Think about that. The person for whom God is not sufficient, that person is asking too much. That's basically what that's saying. He asks too much for whom God is not sufficient. If God's not enough for you, you're asking too much. And I love the way that the simplicity of that statement and the power of that statement to recognize that if God is not enough for me, then I'm asking for too much. That's basically what that says. And so that's Jesus speaking to his disciples in John chapter 12 and teaching us about death to self. But Paul also comments extensively on this throughout his letters. My favorite, the one that I quote more than probably any other scripture up here, is Galatians 2.20. If you've been here for some time, you know that I quote this, this verse often. Because I think it's really central to Paul's understanding, to his own transformation of faith. You see, Paul is much like Job. He started as a Pharisee. He started with the faith of propriety. He started with the do good and good will happen. Follow the law and everything will go well for you. And then he gets knocked off his horse. He gets in a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And he moves from the faith of propriety through the faith of desperation into a faith of sufficiency in God in God's will that would allow him to, to be dragged out of town, beaten and stoned, and get up and walk back into town. Like nobody else does that, right? Unless you've died to yourself and you can say, as Paul says in Acts 20, I count my life, no longer count my life as worthy or valuable to myself, but only in as much as it advances his purposes in the gospel. That's the death to self that Paul had experienced. And in Galatians, we see that the Galatians is a very very autobiographical letter that Paul is writing. He's, he's defending his calling. He's defending his apostleship as one sent by God to the Gentile world. And as he does that in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I've been crucified. That's a death to self. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, but he's still alive. He's still living. He's still breathing. So obviously he's not talking about a physical crucifixion. He's talking about a death to self. He's talking about a death to his ego, that his ego, his flesh has been crucified with Christ. And if you know anything about crucifixion, you know that the actual cause of death is either blood loss or Asphyxiation, you, you literally 
stop breathing because you can't, you can't pull yourself up anymore. You, you become so exhausted from hanging on the cross that you can't pull up enough to draw breath in. And, and that's how you die. It's a horrible way to die. It's the way that Jesus died on our behalf. He died the literal, physical, actual death so that we could experience the death to self with him. Willard makes this point so powerfully and so beautifully. When he says Christ was not crucified so that we wouldn't have to be, he was crucified so that we could be crucified with him. He was crucified literally so that we wouldn't have to be crucified literally. But he wasn't crucified literally so that we wouldn't have to experience that at all. He, was, he did that so that we could do that with him, so that we could experience the death to self with him. He died. He did not die so that we wouldn't have to die. He died so that we could die with him. It's in death to self that we are crucified with Christ. And Willard points out something really interesting I never thought of before, but you can't crucify yourself. It takes help. Even if I could get one hand pounded in, how am I going to get the other hand pounded in? This is a cooperation with the Spirit. God loves us enough to allow us to die to ourselves, to be crucified to ourselves, so that we can live with Him and live for Him. Is it painful? Yeah. It was painful for Jesus to die the literal death on the cross. It will be painful for us to, to surrender completely our desires, our appetites, our wills, which may or may not be evil in and of themselves, but they're terrible masters. He's a wonderful master. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? And so when we die to ourselves, it's not that we no longer want anything or desire anything. We desire the things that God desires for us. We desire what he has said is good for us. And the life we now live, just as Paul says, we live by faith in the Son of God, in the sufficiency of God, in the goodness of God, just as the psalmist says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a death to self. It's a death to self. Willard summarizes this whole section by saying, deny yourself and follow Christ. Or deny Christ and follow yourself. Those are the options. Those are the options. We either deny ourselves so that we can follow Christ. We say, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing when I am following him. Or we say, I am my shepherd. I'll decide what's going to happen in my life. And to do so is to deny Christ. Those are the two options. And that is why our bottom line today is that death to self precedes life with Christ. Death to self precedes life with Christ. It's very clear from the Gospels. It's very clear from Jesus' teaching. It's very clear from Paul's teaching. Death to self precedes life with Christ. And life with Christ is the life without lack. Jesus lived a life without lack. So can we. That was week one bottom line. That was the big idea from this whole thing is that the Lord... is our shepherd. Our shepherd lived a life without lack, even though he suffered terribly. How did he do it? He had faith in God. He died to himself. He lived a life of love, and he invites us to do the same. After he says, come to me, and I will give you rest, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and gentle in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. And so I also said, not only are we going to look at what Jesus has to say about death to self and what Paul has to say about death to self, but there's this anonymous exhortation that I want to close with. And if you were here last week, you know that we looked at Hebrews chapter 11 as a powerful definition of faith. That faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then this declaration in verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. And here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, at the close of this great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, we get a therefore. And if you've been around for a while, you know every time I say there's a therefore, we should ask, what's the therefore therefore? Because it's, it's establishing something new based on the foundation that has been built. So as we've looked at all these, these powerful ex- examples of faith... We see a therefore, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and run the race set before us with perseverance. Oh, and we've got to get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. I knew I was missing something. We're surrounded by people in the church, in the body of faith, and outside of the body of faith. And they're looking, especially out there in the world, they're looking to see, is there anything different about that person that has the Jesus fish on their car and that goes to church on Sunday and that posts things on social media? Is there anything different about them when a trial comes, when a difficulty comes, when they get cut off in traffic? Amen? Anybody? They want to know if there's anything different about us. They're watching. The world is watching. And so, there's the exhortation, let us throw off everything that hinders. Myself hinders my faith, my ego, my appetites, my flesh. It hinders the growth of my faith and the expression of my faith in Christ in my life. So we throw that off. We throw off the sin that so easily entangles. We pursue a life of holiness. We run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, don't miss that, there was joy set before Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. We fix our eyes on him. We say, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm just following the shepherd. Come what may, I am following the shepherd. Even if I go through dark valleys, even if the table is set before my enemies, because the same joy that was set before him is set before us. That we can die to ourselves just as Jesus died to himself for the joy that was set before him. Do you know what the joy that was set before Jesus was? It was you. It was me. It was all the redeemed. It was 2,000 years later, there would be people all over the world singing his praises, laying their lives down for the gospel, laying their lives down to follow Jesus through this life. Maybe you've heard the statement, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus there, it was love. It was his love for you, it was his love for me, it was the love that he had. He tells that he could call down 10,000 angels in the Garden of Gethsemane and this whole thing isn't going to happen. And the same was true on the cross, but he chose to die for us. He chose to die to himself so that we could live with him. And then verse 3 tells us, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so you will not grow weary or lose heart. This world comes at us. And if we get focused on ourselves, on our self, our cross gets large and heavy But when we focus on Jesus and what he has done for us, our cross gets smaller 
and lighter. And we can live that life without lack because he endured so much more than we did. We can consider him so that we will not grow weary or lose heart. And we can keep seeking and we can keep surrendering and we can keep serving and we can keep following because he did, because he showed us how, because he paved the way. And because he's with us, he's promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Even in the darkest valley, he is there with us and we can draw strength and encouragement from his presence. And so when we say death to self precedes life with Christ, that's more than a bottom line. That's the truth of the gospel, that life with Christ, that's the life without lack. And it is preceded by death to self. So we start with trust in God, which we looked at last week. We die to ourselves And then we live a life of love, which is what we will look at next week. But before we do, before we close, I want to to encourage us to respond to this truth, to this reality that death to self precedes life with Christ. By participating in communion, and if if you're new here at Linwood, and you haven't been here on a first Sunday of the month when we participate in communion, We want you to know that we serve what's called an open communion. That means you don't have to be a member here. or You don't have to go through some process in order to participate in communion. You only have to follow Christ's instructions that as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of him. And if you have children that are with you, if you are confident that they understand the significance of communion, then they're welcome at the table as well. Again, this week we have prepackaged option if you're more comfortable with that. We also have the open cups and grab a a piece of bread uh, from the table. And then we ask that everybody just hold the elements until all have been served and all return and lead us through partaking in those. But now I'd like to lead us in a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance, a prayer of surrender, and a prayer of gratitude. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we confess that we have not always loved you as we should. We confess that there have been times when we have prioritized our own comfort over your kingdom. We confess that there have been times when we have prioritized our wants, our desires, our appetites over your will and your ways. We confess that there have been times when we have prioritized what we want over the pursuit of holiness. And so we repent and we turn from these sins and we ask you to please forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We surrender ourselves anew and afresh to your will and we ask you to help us, help us to seek you, help us to follow you, help us to bring glory and honor to you in our lives. And Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the table before us. We give you thanks for your sacrifice, for your giving body, for your shed blood. And Lord, we remember. And as we remember, we rejoice in what you have done for us. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.